Okay, so it looks like I'm recording on both audio and video. <clears throat> My name is Jonathan Reposh. This is the Strength for All podcast. You are listening to episode 30, and this is going to be a very special uh, Q&A episode. This is the second Q&A I've ever done on this podcast. I curated some questions from um, clients, people, questions people have asked me on Instagram, uh, just general conversations I've had with people. If you notice, recognize your own question in here, awesome. But this is the second time I've ever done a Q&A in a podcast form, and I hope you like it. If you do, make sure to leave me a five-star review or a positive review on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to this on. So without any further ado, I will get right into the questions. Question number one. What is the best kind of protein supplement? Okay, so... I, I think for me, it's usually like the intersection of a few points. So the first thing I'll say is I recommend in general you should try and find, if you can, a protein supplement that has a third-party testing label on it. So I don't remember the exact name of the organization, but there's you should just look up whoever WADA recommends, which the World Anti-Doping Association, I believe, whoever they recommend for... Uh, a third-party testing facility for supplements, that's who I would probably use uh, or look for a label, look for a supplement that has, is like approved by them or tested by the, the organization that is recommended by WADA. The second thing I would say is I realize that this is not necessarily practical for people out actually in the world because main, mainly because just a lot of supplements don't have this and a lot of the supplements you're going to find over the counter at like GNC or Walmart or the pharmacy wherever are just not going to have this so I mean you're going to have to understand that whenever you're buying a supplement you're going to get a large degree of potential variability in what's actually in that supplement versus what the label claims is in that supplement and Essentially, if you don't have a third-party testing label, there's there's no way to know this. There's no way to know if what's listed on the label is actually what's in the supplement because supplements are regulated differently than food and drugs. So they can essentially put whatever they want in the supplement and until someone tests it and proves that there's an inadequate – like someone does their own independent testing and proves that they're underdosing this supplement – it's no one does anything about it. And even after that happens, a lot of times stuff are, is still not done. And there's been studies where more than 50% of over-the-counter supplements have less than qu the clinically recommended quantities and also less than what's rec what's listed on the label. So they're just basically lying about what's in there, whether that's because their sourcing, sourcing methods suck or whoever they're paying to make it for them is being dishonest or the supplement company themselves is being dishonest. That's kind of up in the air, um, indeterminate. Again, something else that's impossible to know about. So with all that baggage kind of in the forefront of the mind, putting aside all that baggage, I guess you could say, what I would just generally recommend for protein supplements is even if you can't find a uh, third-party, one with a third-party testing label that's within your affordability range, I would recommend you, you find a protein powder that is the intersection of these three points. Number one... Try and find, and this is actually probably the most important, try and find a protein powder that you actually enjoy the flavor of. So if, if you have a protein supplement that you just think is disgusting and mixing it is, it doesn't mix well and it tastes like crap, 
even if it has really good, like, you know, it has a lot of protein and it's affordable or whatever, you're probably not going to regularly use that protein supplement, right? You're probably not going to, uh, it's, it's not going to be effective if you don't take it regularly, right? So that would honestly probably be the first thing I would say is find a protein supplement you actually like the taste of. This, because, and as long as the protein supplement doesn't have like obscenely bad, uh, you know, like you don't want to be buying a mass gainer for your protein supplement. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't recommend buying a mass gainer ever for anyone, but probably don't want to buy a mass gainer for a protein supplement. Any whey protein supplement um, that tastes good would be the first thing. The second thing that I would think about is what is the price per gram of protein that you're getting. So if you're buying a supplement that has 20 servings and there's 30 grams per serving and it costs, let's just say $50, right? And then you have something that's uh, 20 servings and it's 25 grams per serving and it costs like $60. Obviously the first one has more protein per dollar. So that would be the second point is you want to get you want to get your bang for your buck your protein per dollar and this is again not a it's not an apples to apples comparison because without getting into the nitty gritty about looking at like the BCAAs or the amino acid profile of a protein supplement it's 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 I think just on the base level, this is what I always did when I would go to like muscle and strength or bodybuilding.com. I just, I, I made actually made my own spreadsheets where I compare like protein, quantity of protein, grams of protein per dollar. And it was like, okay, so this is this number, this is that number, um, whichever I would generally favor the ones that have the higher protein um, per dollar. And then the third point for where I would say that you want to be for your protein is you want to get the protein that generally has uh, more protein per calorie. So essentially, if one protein powder has 100 grams or sorry, 100 calories with 20 grams of protein, and the other one is 120 calories with 30 grams of protein, the 120 calories with, at 30 grams of protein has more uh, protein per calorie. So that's just you know a really like thousand foot view of how to pick your protein supplement. Again, to summarize, taste, uh, cost, and protein per gram. Or sorry, uh, protein per calorie. Yeah, let's adjust that. Sorry. Let's go on to question number two. Question number two. Should I be gaining weight to build muscle? So to answer this question, I think this is very context dependent. It's, it's, it depends on your goals. It depends on your bot starting body weight, honestly, and it depends on probably some other factors. So for, for, let me give you an example. If if I am someone who is like I'm six foot tall and I weigh like 150 pounds and I don't have abs, but I want to get abs. I think honestly, the, the long-term play when you're in that position is to try to gain a little bit of weight. And the reason for that is because if you are 150 pounds and you're six foot tall, you don't have a ton of muscle mass. So if you want to end up having abs without having to strip yourself down to be very thin, you're probably going to need to gain muscle. And in order to do that, you gain muscle more efficiently when you're in a calorie surplus. But that doesn't mean that that's the answer for everyone. And that also doesn't mean that you can't build muscle in a calorie deficit. Generally, the more of a beginner you are, the more overweight that you are, and the more seriously you take your training, the more 
the the larger uh, I'd say possibility you have to be able to gain muscle while in a calorie deficit. So if you are, you know, like 220, if you're let's say you're the same height, six foot tall, you're 220 pounds, and you're like, well, should I, should I gain weight to to build muscle? At that point, I'd be like, well, you're not like super overweight. Uh, you're probably you're in the overweight, probably technically the uh, the range of having obesity. But, uh, you know, so I'm not, I wouldn't recommend that person to gain weight simply due to the fact that they are in the, the BMI range where it's probably going to start, uh, negatively impacting health outcomes if they go like too far up there. I know, I know some stuff like, I know starting strength, Mark Ripito, he wants people to like gain weight and just, you know, throw strength out the door and, or sorry, throw, uh, throw your your body weight out the door it doesn't matter like you sh- it doesn't you shouldn't be lean right it doesn't it, you just want to be heavy, stronger right that's if your goals are like purely strength based and that's like the only goal you have uh, you will definitely build more strength in a calorie surplus than a calorie deficit but i don't know that for beginners that that uh difference is massively pronounced especially when you probably should be losing weight uh, anyway, or you probably have weight to, you could probably drop weight and become, put yourself in a healthier body weight range by doing that. So you don't really need to, yeah, you don't, uh, again, I, I, whenever I'm assessing this with a new client, I usually go like, Hey, what's your goals? Hey, uh, do you really want to be stronger? Do you really want to build a ton of muscle? Do you really want to, and, and know that that stuff is also like a long-term game. If I, sometimes if, if I don't think someone is going to necessarily have the, if I think the person is like, you know, they're borderline and I'm like, this person seems really, really committed. I might be like, you know, yeah, let's bulk or yeah, let's cut just to see how lean you can get. But I just don't think I, the, the way I would assess it with a new client is usually like, what are your goals? Like, where is your current body weight? Like I would usually try and if they're like, if they're kind of in the overweight or to the range of having obesity, I would probably recommend that they not bulk. And usually if they are on the lower end of the BMI range, I'd be like, well, you know, you're, you're perfectly fine with gaining weight, even if you don't have abs right now. Again, like if you're six foot tall and you're like 150 pounds you can get, you'll probably get like much better significant muscle gains if you're at that point than if you're, you know, decide to cut. Okay. Question three, why slash how aren't restaurant menu nutrition facts accurate? So this was actually based off of a conversation I had with a client earlier this week. And I'll just, I'll start out with an example. I, (coughs) excuse me, Fat Bastard Burrito is a burrito place that I really enjoy. It's probably my favorite burrito place. It's one of my favorite restaurants up here in uh, Toronto. They have a bun- uh, several locations, and I think they make a great burrito. So uh, you look at their menu, and it goes uh, big burrito. Or I, it's either the big burrito or the huge burrito. They have three ones. They have a small, a big, and a huge. 422 calories. But when you actually read the this fine print of the menu, it says burrito uh, calories are uh, that's the calories for only the meat and the tortilla. That's all that's included in that calorie. So if you were to get a, a you know a tort uh, a meat and tortilla burrito with no toppings, that would be the calories. And then each of the individual calories listed or uh, toppings that you get, depending on you know cilantro, cheese, rice, noodles, they're all an additional you know six upwards to even almost a hundred calories. Like if you're putting guac on there that's a lot of calories if you get in the burrito sauce that's a lot of calories and i added it up that even though the menu said that the burrito i was ordering was 420 calories the actual the actual calorie content of the burrito was somewhere in the range of 
four or sorry, 1000 to 1400. So a lot of times they will display the lowest possible number that they can get away with putting on the menu for ca the calories and then put in like fine print. Another example with this client that we were talking about this week was actually we were looking at the salad, um, a specific salad bowl from a restaurant and the salad, the restaurant had it listed at like a certain number of calories, but it turns out that that was like half of the salad and it didn't include dressing. So when we used the whole salad and we included dressing, it was like almost, it was actually more than triple the calories. So you really got to look at that stuff. And the thing is, I, it's probably borderline false advertising. It's definitely deceptive. But they can get away with it because I don't know if there's there's any regulations on that or, or, you know, I don't know if there's any laws or regulations on that, but I don't like necessarily like it, but I think it's just another thing to say you should be looking at your menus, you should be reading your nutrition facts, you shouldn't just say, oh, you know, 400 calories for this. It, the more you do that and track that, the more you'll kind of be able to sniff out something like that if it doesn't seem right. Like the whole reason why I did this with the burrito place is because I was like, I knew that it was not a 400 calorie burrito because this thing was like the size of my head, right? So I'm like, there's no way this, cal this burrito is 400 calories, right? So the, the more you track stuff, the more you track food, the more comfortable you get at figuring that type of thing out. Number four, what, do, what should I do if the floor of my gym is uneven? It throws me off specifically for deadlifts. The bar is rolling away from me. So this is, uh, I'll start with, I'll, I'll start another anecdote. I'll, I'll answer this question with another anecdote. One of the gyms I, well, before COVID, now the, right now the gyms are all locked down in Ontario, but one of the gyms I work slash worked at has really old plates and the floor of the gym is not perfectly uneven, so or it's not perfectly even. So if you're trying to deadlift on, at this gym, and it's impossible to get the bar to just stay still. <laughs> like, you have to reset it between reps, not just, like, you know, reset like you normally would on a deadlift. But if you try and reset, the bar's going to roll all over the place. You kind of have to hold the bar in position. So what I would do in this case is it's it just kind of is what it is. You know, you're not if if you're really interested in like becoming like a power lifter and you really want to like work on increasing your one rep maxes and you need the the really good equipment. Like, I I don't know. I, I think you can get strong with not great equipment. Like my bench press setup at home, I think is actually pretty terrible for bench press. It actually is probably severely hamstringing my actual bench press potential just because of the way the my rack is not really a bench press rack and my safeties are not really good and my bench is kind of crooked. So having not great equipment can certainly hamstring your ability to become really good in like the context of one rep maxes or powerlifting or something like that. So if you're really, really concerned about that, I might recommend like talking to the gym owner about it. You could talk to the gym owner about it, but that's likely not to work. You might just need to find another gym that has better, more, uh, you know, it has more updated equipment, I guess you could say, and better flooring. You know, another option is just, I mean, you don't need to do a barbell deadlift. If you're not like in the powerlifting, you don't need to do a barbell deadlift. You could do a Romanian deadlift. You could do a deficit Romanian deadlift off standing on like a couple plates. Like if you stand on a couple plates and you do a deficit Romanian deadlift, you don't ever need to touch the floor with the bar except for on your first rep. And you can get just as much of a muscle and strength uh, increase from doing that as you could with a conventional deadlift. So... 
do that. You know, you can always do other exercises to build the muscles that are used in a deadlift. You can do hamstring curls. You can do back extensions. You can do Nordic hamstring curls. You can do uh, whatever, glute ham raises, uh, right? You have a different options. So I would explore that. And then also, I because I just like deadlifting, I would deadlift with the asymmetrical plates. I would basically just deadlift strongman style. If you ever watch them, they kind of like roll the bar between reps back and forth and, and put it in position because you figure the bar is going to be rolling around anyway. Because of the uneven floor, you might as well control that roll and own that roll. So those are my tips for deadlifting on an uneven floor. And, oh, one final note, I don't think that deadlifting on a floor that's not perfectly flat is going to create muscle imbalances in any way because we are always walking and moving and lifting and living on surfaces that are not perfectly symmetrical, going upstairs, walking up inclines, so on and so forth. So training on a perfectly flat surface or not perfectly flat surface is probably not going to do anything to promote muscle imbalances. And if you're really worried about it, just switch the side of the bar you're on for every set. (laughs) Okay. Number five, how often should I weigh myself? Um, This is actually a really big question that the person sent to me, but the gist of the question is, I, sorry, just taking a drink. My mouth gets dry when I talk so much. Um, Yeah, so essentially the gist of the question is they're working on uh, uh, calories in versus calories out. They are um, using a calorie tracker, I suppose. And it says, one day I weighed myself and then the next day it went up like two and a half pounds. Uh, What's going on? I'm letting it mentally impact me, so on and so forth. So... I'm actually writing an article for my website right now, and it's actually turned into a three-part article. It's probably, it's going to be at least two parts, maybe three parts, about weight fluctuations. So if you want just the gist of part one, it's that there are at least like 10 different things that affect your body weight on any given day that are not directly uh, related to you gaining body fat. In fact, you, when your weight jumps up like a pound or two from one day to the next, it is pretty much assuredly not body fat. Like there's, as far as I know, never been any data to show that the body can really like spontaneously build a bunch of body fat, like several pounds of body fat in the span of a day or a night. What what that weight likely is, is it's likely you ate extra food, so the, you have more food mass or you drank extra water. So that's the most likely culprit of it. I, th- I think this is a reason that why you should be weighing every day, because if you're only weighing every once in a while, these transient weight fluctuations can really mess with your mind. But if you're weighing every day and you're just thinking of it as like, oh, you know, it's just another way and it's whatever. I'm looking at my trends and not like I'm not taking too much stock in a specific way and that'll help you. But I'm gonna. Have, there's gonna be a lot more about this in this article. It's they're probably gonna be at least like 1,500-ish words each, each section, each one. So check out my website, JohnnyRepsFitness.com. By the time this podcast goes up, the first part might already be there. Okay. So why do? It's question seven. Why do you say mobility is bullshit? This type of of training is important to improve quality of movement. The majority of the population lacks mobility because of a sedentary lifestyle. Even basic movements can be painful. I think what you're saying is irresponsible and misleading. So I posted on uh, Instagram a little while ago that I that mobility is bullshit. So let me expand on this. 
So I think mobility as it is defined by a lot of modern practitioners is bullshit. And the reason for that is because doing specific exercises to like, I'm going to mobilize my hips for squatting, or I'm going to activate my hamstrings for deadlifting, or I'm going to whatever. It's in general, for most people's goals, a waste of time. I'll give you an example. Like if someone is, it says here that many people find basic movements painful. So if if you have a specific movement that is painful, my first thought there is we need to get you to doing that movement in a way that is not painful. And honestly, doing mobility work is not going to really help that. Like doing movements that are unrelated to the movement that is painful is not going to help that. Because the way to solve this issue, the way to solve pain issues in training is that you need to gradually reintroduce yourself to the movement patterns that are painful. You don't want to avoid them. You don't want to, you don't want to like do stuff that's entirely unrelated and just ignore the exercise that hurts forever. That's not necessarily going to help. What you want to do is like, for example, if I can't squat with, uh, without pain, well, can you squat less weight without pain? Okay, maybe you can. If you can't squat less weight without pain, maybe we can reduce weight or get you to do a different type of squat. Can you do a goblet squat? Can you do a front squat? Can you do a leg press, right? Maybe we need to reduce the range of motion. Maybe we need to add a stop, like a box, and then we'll like have you do a box squat. And then the next step after that is after we can comfortably get you doing something, like find a good entry point, progress that. So we let's say we can get you to squatting to a high box squat with body weight. Next week, maybe we'll, or even possibly in the same session, we'll move you on to doing a lower box squat. And then a lower, and then eventually, you know, once you're below parallel, then we'll say, okay, let's try doing a box squat holding a kettlebell, right? And then we'll do the kettlebell and we'll progress you. And then, okay, you're back below parallel. You're using a kettlebell. Let's try doing a free body weight squat with no kettlebell. Oh, you can do that. Let's well, let's try using the kettlebell to do a body a body weight or a goblet squat with the kettlebell, and eventually you'll be moving back toward the direction of doing the exercise or the movement that you found threatening by just slowly reintroducing yourself to it. That's the injury recovery process. What I don't think is helpful is telling someone to avoid a movement because it's painful, or telling them that like you can't do this movement just because it's painful because we ha- I think a better way to frame it is we want to find a way to have you do a movement that's close to this so we can gradually reintroduce the movement into your training that's the process that's worked for me that's the process that's worked for many of my clients before and um, I think back to the topic of mobility I, this is also something else I'm considering writing an article on <coughs> excuse me Back to the topic of mobility, I think that how would you define mobility? Would you say like, oh, my ability to just be like very bendy, like, okay, I want to do, I want to like, you know, squat like extra deep. Like if, if you're capable of hitting like depth on a squat, what's the point of doing mobility work? Like let's use it outside of the context of like if you're not having a pain issue, because we already established that the best way to work on a pain issue is not involving like these weird activation stretches or anything like that, because there's really the data on like doing this stuff is really at best shaky. Like, so if I want to get you, like, if you don't have a pain issue, if we're like, okay, let's do, uh, you know, I, I'm just want to like do mobility work because I think it's good. It's like, okay, so you squat, you already squat like super deep. You're, are you trying to increase your range of motion in the squat by doing mobility work? And it's like, even if you were, 
it's it's been shown that it would be more effective for you to just squat deeper instead of doing like mobility work, right? Squat literally just squatting deeper would increase your range of motion on the squat better than doing mobility work, right? Um, and it's not going to increase your strength, right? There's actually studies that show that if you static stretch, it decreases your strength afterward. It does not reduce your injury risk. Like extra mobility work and extra stretching does not reduce injury risk before training. Um, it does not like improve adherence or imp- unless this is like mobility is like your one thing that you're like, I truly believe in mobility. I truly want to do mobility work. And that is, that is the thing. That's like the only form of training that I am going to do. That's the only thing I'm going to be inherent when in adherent with, then I would be like, okay, maybe you have to start with mobility work, but that's more of like a mental limitation. You are simply placing on yourself more than mobility actually being useful, mobility work being actually useful. And I say this as someone who actually used to be a pretty big proponent of mobility work. Like I would recommend clients and I would do mobility work myself, but when I actually learned more about it, it turns out that it was not, and and I took other approaches. I was like, I'm saving a bunch of time, not doing this unproductive part of training. So in summary, my, my question would be like, it's not like I need to disprove that mobility. Like I, I don't need to like point by point, disprove everything about mobility. It's like mobility needs to prove mobility work has to prove that it is actually valuable. And it hasn't, (laughs) it's not, it's just, (coughs) you know, if it, if it was actually useful for those things that it's claimed to be useful for, there would probably be evidence of that. And there's not. Okay. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Let's go on to question number eight. Is using bands or a backpack for bicep curls better or worse? I'm using your free home program, and I want to make sure I'm doing it right. Okay, so if you don't know, I have a free home program that's on my website. If you sign up for my newsletter, I will send you the program for free. Just go to the free program tab on johnnyrepsfitness.com. That, that's the first thing. So the mobility, the, or sorry, it's not a mobility program. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all messed up. There's nothing to do with mobility in the program. Um in the program, there's variations of all sorts of different exercises that there's body weight variation. There's variations that use body weight. There's variations that use bands. There's variations that use um, improvised home equipment, like a backpack. And there's even, like, you can actually set up the workout where you don't need any equipment at all to do it if you select the exercises from the drop-down menus. It's a really great program. If you don't, if you have limited equipment at home, I seriously recommend it. 10 out of 10 would recommend. I put a lot of time and effort into it. But whether you're doing a band curl or a backpack curl, it's I don't really know that there's any sort of specific difference in the way those exercises affect the biceps that would cause me to pick one as superior for the other. If you have access to a backpack that you can weight progressively, I would probably tend to be on the side of that over the bands, like if you only have a couple, a band or two, because you can more efficient, effectively, progressively overload the backpack, right? Like if I can do like five pounds of books, six pounds of books, seven, I, I can keep adding more books or rice or whatever you're going to use in, in the backpack for weight. Um, another consideration might be if you find the performance of backpack curls awkward and the band curls are much feel much better, stick with the band because you're not going to get great benefit out of an exercise if performing the exercise feels awkward every single time you're doing it. But... If assuming you have access to, like, let's say you have access to a a full range of bands and you have access to, you have a backpack and you have all sorts of stuff you could put in it for increasing or decreasing the weight of it. And you find both exercises to be equally easy to perform. 
I would just do either one. There's there's not really a, a difference. I would just I, actually what I would probably do personally is I would probably choose one, run it for a whole training cycle for like four to six weeks. My pro, the program's actually four weeks, so I actually might run it for two training cycles. I actually might run it for eight weeks, and then on the next training cycle, switch to the bands and do those for four to eight weeks, and then. You know, when the next one, the next tra- training cycle comes around, switch to another variation on the program because the program has a lot of different variations of each exercise. So, yeah, that's what I would do there. All right, question number nine. I'm having grip issues on the deadlift. The bar is starting to slip out of my hands on the last rep or two. What would you recommend? So, deadlift grip issues are astoundingly common. There are a lot of things that you can do to remedy them, depending on what you are or aren't doing. Here's the order that I would probably address them. First of all, when you start out deadlifting, most people use a double overhand grip like this. If you're watching the, if you're watching a video of this, you can see it. But if you're on the podcast, what I'm doing is both my hands are basically made into fists and they're pointing toward the screen. That's a double overhand grip. The next most common grip is you have a mixed grip where people will do one hand over, one hand under. So my fists are now... Uh, facing away from each other. I all the, the mixed grip is generally going to be a sturdier, it's going to hold you in position, your hands on the bar, better than a double overhand grip. And then the third variation is if you look up something called hook grip, you put your thumbs in first on the bar, and then you wrap your fingers around the thumbs. So the bar would be in there. Again, if you're watching it on video, let's use this microphone as an example. You put, you put the thumb in first and on the bar, and then wrap your fingers around the thumb. Adjusting to either a mixed grip or a hook grip, for most people, I've found, has given them a lot more. uh, They can lift a lot more with that than doing a standard double overhand grip. The second thing is, and I would recommend this for anyone, especially if your gym allows it, get chalk. Chalk really helps grit up your hands and make them... uh, coarse and they, they you know you don't have to worry about sweat with the chalk it'll dry out the sweat in, on your hands if you have any it'll just help you make a more sturdy connection to the barbell so chalk 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 for sure if your gym doesn't allow chalk try using liquid chalk if your gym really won't even let you use liquid chalk probably try and find a new gym and next thing i would recommend for, for grip strength is don't wear gloves because gloves actually increase the surface area and they're a little bit more slippery than just chalk on your hands so gloves are a no-go if you're actually interested in increasing grip strength straps some people use lifting straps for what they are if you don't know is they wrap around your wrists and then you wrap them around your the bar and it, and then you tighten it tighten them in with your hands so they essentially put some of the tension of the bar on your wrists so you and you also have the the rope or the the strap wrapped around the bar so it's just a more sturdy connection to the barbell i used to be really against straps because i thought like oh you want to you want to build your grip strength when you're deadlifting now i think it really doesn't matter because if you want to use straps use the straps but it's another it's another possible training tool for adding weight to your deadlift if you're having grip issues. Uh, and, and then also the uh, last thing I would do is I would train like stuff like static holds. Because I find like a lot of times grip issues uh, may originate from trying to – well, there's two, two, two points here. One is when the weight gets really heavy, it kind of intimidates you. So getting used to just like handling heavier weights, like doing like rack pulls or like shorter range of motion deadlifts with heavier weight will just get you used to holding heavier weights in your hands. And then the other thing is 
sometimes when people are very beginners at lifting, what they'll do is they'll kind of bend their wrist when they're trying to uh, hold on to the bar. And you really should have your, your wrist straight and kind of have tension in the hand uh, when you're deadlifting. So you should not be trying to like reverse curl the barbell when you're deadlifting because then the bar will just roll out of your hands as soon as you, as soon as you lift off. But, and the final point is Alan Thrall has, <coughs> excuse me, Alan Thrall has a really good video that he recently released um, on straps, and I'm going to look up the exact name of that right now. Um, but he basically uh, he talks with a bunch of people, YouTube fitness people. It's called Lifting Straps When and Why, featuring every YouTuber. And he talks with a bunch of YouTubers on like why and how many of them who are uh, compete and stuff or are fairly pretty strong people or coaches and so on and so forth, like how and when they use lifting straps. And also stuff about hook grip and mixed grip in that video. So I would recommend watching that video for sure. Again, Alan Thrall, Lifting Straps, When and Why, featuring every YouTuber. That's the name of the video. Good video. Okay, number 10. If I have a deload week, should I lower my RPE, total number of sets, slash reps, or both? <clears throat> okay. So in the context of this, I don't know that a deload week is always necessary. So what I mean by that is I am a much bigger fan of when I think of a deload week, I think of like you are cutting sets and reps and weight, like you're cutting it all, like and your RP is just going down, down, down really low because you're basically just doing a really light maintenance week. It's almost like an off week to recover from a really uh, intense, like, you know, buildup of training. Like I might have, if I do a powerlifting meet, I might take, like I've taken a deload week. The only time I've ever really taken deload weeks is uh, powerlifting meets when I've done those, right? So I don't know that uh, doing something outside of that context is going to be, uh, you know, or, or when you're training normally, I don't know that you should really be training at the intensity that you would be if you're doing like a competition, for most people, I mean, some people might, I, I, hell, I've done it before too, but again, even if you're doing that, I'm not sure a deload week is 100% necessary. I kind of better like the idea of a weight cycle. So what I mean by that is like, I will build up to a fairly high intensity, uh, you know, over a course of a certain number of weeks, I will just increase intensity, increase intensity until I'm getting closer to failure. And then at the end of that training cycle, I will decrease intensity, but I will still be training fairly hard. So uh, an example of this of what I've done for myself, is like, okay, I, I'm squatting like, I'm not like really that strong. So I'm squatting like 295 for sets of five, right? But that's not obviously my max. So I'll be like, okay, next week, I'm going to do uh, 300, then I'm going to do 305, then I'm going to do 310, then I'm going to do 315, then I'm going to do 320, however number of weeks that is, right? Over several weeks. And at the end of that, I'm going to cut back down, but I'm going to start, go from 320 to 300. That's my weight reset. It's not a deload. It's only just, uh, but I'm starting at like a higher point of where I ended, of where I started the last session cycle. But sometimes that starting point has to be lower. So sometimes I would have started that cycle at 295. And then by the end, I get to 320. And I'm like, well, this 320 is way heavier than I thought it was going to be. So let's cut down to like 285 for the start of the next cycle and then build up from there. And just over time, I've just found that that gets me more quality training at a higher intensity that leads to better progress than doing like full deloads. A lot of times I will do a full deload. Uh, I, I I think if I'm doing too many deloads, it's a really big sign that training is going uh, wrong. And then the other thing is sometimes if I'm training with a very RPE, because this question asked about RPE, 
if I'm training with a very RPE-based uh, training program, if I was doing my own program, which I'm actually not right now, I'm not doing my own programming, I would, I would uh, work, but if I was doing my own program and it was a very heavily RPE-based program, I would probably increase my number of sets over a certain number of weeks while keeping RPE like the same or creeping upward. And then at the end of that training block, the next training block, I'd probably just do less sets at the start of the training block and build back up, but I'd probably keep RPE the same or maybe either lower it slightly or keep it relatively the same. Uh, I hope I answered that question for you. So not a huge fan of deload weeks. I think you can use weight resets, and I think you can play with all of the variables without having to really ever do it. Like I went several years, actually, just a few a few months ago, a couple months ago, I think it was in either the end of December or beginning of January, I did my first de- my first like actual deload week of training in like th- almost three years. Yeah. Okay, number 11, how is training going? So this is a question that a lot of my clients ask me because they they don't care, but they're, they're trying to make small talk when we're having meetings and stuff. But how is my training personally going? This will be the last, the last question I address. So what I'm doing right now is I'm purpose- currently running the Barbell Medicine Olympic Weightlifting Template. I bought it off of their website. I think Barbell Medicine is a fantastic resource for buying programs. Um, I think their program is very in-depth. It's, it's heavily RPE-based. Um, and it's I've never done Olympic weightlifting before. I don't think I'm going to be in the position to ever compete in Olympic weightlifting at a high level. I mean, I'm 30 and I'm starting this. Most people are already who are actually like competing at a high level in Olympic weightlifting are pretty much retired by the time they're 30. But I don't foresee myself competing in Olympic weightlifting at a high level. And I do, but I am enjoying the program so far. It's it's heavily RPE based. I'm doing a lot of uh, snatches. I'm doing a lot of uh, cleans and variations of such. Like for example, today's workout was a clean from blocks above the knee. Was my first exercise. My second exercise was a what the heck was oh deadlifts just regular deadlifts and then the third exercise was a competition paused bench press i'd say i'm i'm the the thing i'm struggling with right now is probably getting a handle on using rpe as basically the entire basis of my program because every single thing on this barbell medicine pro uh olympic weightlifting program every single thing you do pretty much is rpe based like the, your first exercise are like oh do this for an RPE of seven, then this for an RPE of eight, then this for an RPE of... And there's no, like, percentages or weight numbers that are assigned. And if the percentages do be are used, it's a percentage of a set you already did that day at a certain RPE, if that makes sense. So to me, it's just very... I, I It's not a program that I would recommend for a beginner, because even I've been training for, like, hell. I've been training at gyms for 13 years at the... Almost 13 years at this point. I've been working out for, like, 20 years at this point. So... I would have a hard time recommending this program to a beginner because I even I'm having trouble kind of struggling to adapt to the um, the specifications. Or maybe I'm just stupid and slow. I don't know. But I am enjoying doing Olympic weightlifting, um, and I I think that's that's how my training is going right now. I, I would love to hit a personal best on the clean and jerk, and I would love to hit a personal best on the snatch, and I would also love to hit a personal best on the front squat at some point in the next few months. And I think I might be able to. But if not, I'm just going to try and enjoy the process as much as possible. Oh, and I'm learning how to properly do like full range of motion Nordic hamstring curls, which are without assistance, which are just a brutally hard exercise. Just, uh, yeah. 
but doing it without assistance and doing it properly and with a slow eccentric is, uh, at least I'm finding them quite difficult. But yeah, training's going all right overall. So, yeah. That's the podcast. That was my Q&A part two. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you heard your question, remember, if you message me a question on Instagram or in a message or whatever, I might use it on a Q&A podcast, um, which, but I, a lot of times I change, I, I might adjust the details of it. But anyway, uh, that was the, that was the Q&A podcast part two. If you really liked the podcast, make sure to leave me a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to. It really helps my podcasting traffic. I Last I checked, I'm 134th in Canada. We'll have to check again soon to see if that's gone up. And this has been a special Q&A episode. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to check me out on Instagram at Johnny Reps Fitness and also on TikTok at Johnny Reps. That's what I'm really pushing into hard right now is TikTok. And uh, make sure you check out my website for all the latest articles, johnnyrepsfitness.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great one.